Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. We looked at that last week uh, kind of in a general way. This morning I want to get out the microscope and uh, look at it in some detail. But in Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my load is light. Father, as we open your word this morning, we have had a time of remembering your death and your shed blood for us, your resurrection. We didn't mention it, but you reminded us in that supper with your disciples that we should carry on that tradition until you come again. And we are reminded in it that you are coming again. We're grateful for that. We have sung songs of praise. We have even sung songs of prayer. We've asked you to come close, and that's really what we're asking in the teaching this morning, that you will come close, and that we will come close. Lord Jesus, when you were among us, one of the things you said about the people of God in your day was they had ears, but they could not hear. And they had eyes, but they could not see. And they had become dull of understanding. And Father, too often that's true of us today, your people. We are accustomed to our traditions. We are used to the way we think about things. As a consequence, we we hear teaching and messages that are different, but we don't connect with it. We don't believe it really says what we're hearing, and so we kind of reconstruct it to fit our familiar mold. We have become dull of understanding. And I want to ask this morning, Lord, that you will blast our comfort zone away that you will challenge our traditions and our traditional thought patterns and that this morning we would really hear what you're saying, that it would change our lives. Many people today are disappointed in God. But Lord, it's because they've missed something very crucial in the relationship. And I pray this morning that we will connect with that crucial ingredient so that we will not be disappointed, but have that abundant, full, and rich life that is also characterized by rest and peace that cannot be disturbed. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a thought question for you as we start today. I just, uh, I want to ask it. I'm going to ask it three ways. I just want you to think about it. Um, And then I'm going to go on to some other things and come back to it. This is not a mental status exam. (laughs) You don't have to remember the sequence of numbers. But here's the question. What does it take to be a good Christian? What does it take to be a good Christian? Or ask another way, what does a good Christian look like? What does it take to be a good Christian? What does a good Christian look like? Um, How would you define a dedicated Christian this morning? Just think about it. Friday night... um, my wife and I had dinner with our district superintendent and his wife, John and Kathy Rich. They 
they uh, are kind of setting up appointments with pastors around the district to go and visit with them and spend some time. No agenda. Well, at least not one that's declared. And uh, no, uh, no pressure and nothing like that. Just, just come, let's have dinner, let's visit together, let's, uh, let's get to know each other a little bit better. And so um, John and Kathy came up and um, we suggested that, rather they said, pick a restaurant, we'll go to the restaurant of your choice. Well, trying to get in a restaurant in McHenry on Friday night, as those of you who have tried know, takes about an hour to an hour and a half. And, and so we said, why don't we just do carry out and you can come to our house because if you want to get to know who we are, just, just come where we live and see that. And so they did that. And they came over. We had a, a nice dinner together. And then we were sitting around talking. And I asked John the question. I said, how is it going in the district? How are the rest of the churches doing? How's it going out there? And uh, he started talking to me about the things that he is seeing. And... Um, you know, he said, there's some things that are not so good, and then there's some things that are good. And he said, I think what I'm all about, and this is where I say there was no agenda, but you, you get him talking about his passion, and you know there, there, is, there is something going in, on in there that he wants to get the message across. And he said, what I'm all about is getting people to think about church differently. He said, I want them to stop counting noses. I want them to stop counting offerings. I want them to stop, you know, in terms of a statistical evaluation. He says, I want him to stop looking at programs. He says, I'm trying to get people to think about church differently. And he talked about this one pastor in Indiana who's about 28 or 29 years old. And, and this guy told him when he was there at his place a couple weeks ago, he said, one of these days you're going to get a call from somebody in my congregation. And here's what they're going to tell you. They're going to tell you that our pastor is driving us crazy because he gets up and says the same thing every single Sunday. Even if he's not preaching, he says the same thing. And he says, what I keep telling them is, this is not the church. You are the church. This is not the church. You're the church. All through the week, 24-7, you are the church. It's not a building. It's not a program. It's not a place. It's not a pastor. It's you out there 24-7. And he says, I say that every single Sunday because I want them to begin to realize that the church is not an organization, it's not an institution, it's not a building, it's not a location. The church are all the followers of Jesus Christ. We are the church. All through the week, all day long, all the time, we are the church. I have been speaking the last several months on essential truths of the gospel. And I have deliberately taken Martin Luther's effort to bring Reformation and Revival to the Catholic Church in the 16th century as my jumping point because it is in his trilogy of statements by grace alone, by faith alone, by Scripture alone, that he laid the foundation for a revival that would shake the church. And it did not, in fact, revive the Catholic Church of his day. They threw him out. And it became a Protestant protesting movement to bring people back to those core values of the gospel of Jesus Christ is by grace alone. It comes through faith and the final authority for our lives is not a pope or a preacher or a priest or a teacher or a theologian. The final authority for our lives is the word of God rightly interpreted, which every believer, with the, the enabling of the Holy Spirit, can understand the Scriptures, and that is the final authority for our life. And he brought that message to the church. But unfortunately, in his effort at Reformation, he did not completely transform the mindset of Christian people. It went a little, a little ways. It was a big jump to, to begin to get our arms around grace again, that Salvation doesn't come through all this arduous working and effort and jumping through all the hoops and doing all the, the sacraments, but it comes through just faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. But he failed in the effort to blast the church out of a thousand years of bureaucratic tradition that has institutionalized it. And unfortunately, the church today, Protestants, Evangelicals, Fundamentalists, the Independents, whatever you want to call any other group, we are still hampered by the concept, the mentality, that church is an organization that consists of a building 
where people come and do spiritual stuff. We have committees that do mission work, and, and we have kids' programs, and we have uh, adult classes, and we do Bible studies, and we have a, a clergy and a laity, and we have an organization and a structure, and that's the church. And, and we're stuck in that mindset. It's almost impossible for us to think differently. And John was talking about how he's trying to communicate this throughout the district, that the church is not the building, the budget, the, the, the attendance, but church is people living in the community, the life of Jesus Christ in a way that transforms the people around them by their very lifestyle as they communicate Jesus Christ. And it doesn't look like our traditional measuring stick. Success is not evaluated in terms of how many people came on Sunday morning and how big was the offering. Success is measured in, is my life making a difference in the community because of Jesus Christ? Am I having an impact that is bringing other people into a relationship with God? And we were talking about that, and I thought, you know, that's a message that I've been trying to communicate for a very long time. I have a friend that he's, his whole message to his church for the last several years, he calls it being the Ephesians 4 church. And, and, and what he's trying to teach people is from Ephesians 4, that his role as pastor teacher is to equip everyone in the room to do ministry. That is, to be servants of Jesus Christ and to bring his life out into the context of the community. And to stop thinking of church hierarchically, organizationally, bureaucratically, but to think of the church as a living entity of people moving through the community, bringing God into the equation in every context of their lives. That is a huge shift in thinking. That we don't come to church, we are the church. We don't do church things here, but we live Jesus everywhere. That He is the center of all that we do. And as we talked about that, I realized that, that that's a, a, a battle I've been facing for a long time, trying to communicate that concept. But another one that I have been trying to communicate for a long time, and my message is not about the church at all, that was just kind of a, a parallel thought. Another message that I've been trying to communicate for years that I'm not sure is getting through because it is so foreign to our thinking is that the life of faith in Jesus Christ has absolutely nothing to do with religion. But the life of faith in Jesus Christ has absolutely nothing to do with religion, including the Christian religion. In fact, Jesus personally hated religion. If you don't believe that, go back and read the Gospels with those spectacles on. Go back and read the Gospels with, with the glasses on that says the glasses are Jesus hates religion and see if you don't see it. Every time he's talking to someone religious, except Nicodemus, and he was pretty tough on him, but every time he's talking to Pharisees, Sadducees, or lawyers, he's not saying nice things. When he's talking to adulterers, when he's talking to thieves, when he's talking to robbers, when he's talking to drunkards and demon-possessed, man, he's fantastic. But when he's talking to Pharisees and Sadducees and, and theologians, and those were the lawyers of the day, he's not saying very nice things. He's saying things like, you're like a lovely mausoleum in the cemetery. It's all polished marble and whitewash, but inside you're just full of death and decay. Ooh, that's nasty. 
Or, this is one. Can you imagine having someone say this to you? He says, you know what? I have to admire your evangelistic efforts. In fact, as I've observed, you search the entire world. You go everywhere possible. You go over the whole world trying to make a convert. And when you finally make one, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you yourself are. Whoa! That is a very powerful statement. I mean, Jesus is saying, look at you. You're trying your best to win converts, and when you get them, you ruin them. You're bad enough, but you make them worse. Jesus didn't have great things to say about religion. In fact, twice in the Gospels, if you follow the narrative, you realize it was two different times. He went into the temple in the heart of Jerusalem, the center of religious activity, and kicked over tables and chased out sacrificial animals and drove out money changers who were sitting there making a profit out of selling animals for sacrifice because they had made the rules that there had to be certain kinds of animals and whatever, and it was too hard to bring them from home, so they would have the people come, and, and then you had to exchange your, your, your Roman money or whatever for temple dollars, and somebody was making a profit on the exchange rate, and then you used the temple dollars to buy the temple animals that were special, and, and it, was a big, it was a big financial scheme. It was a racket, yeah. And it was like, you know, Jesus is saying, gag. I hate this. And, and you have turned my father's house, which was supposed to be a house of prayer, into a den of robbers and thieves. He was not nice to religious people. And when we come to Matthew chapter 28... And, and we read, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. As I told you last week, the context of the passage is about religious practices, religious rules, keeping the rules, following the, the, the program. And Jesus says, some of you are burnt out with this. You're tired of it. You are, you are worn out. You're tired of being religious. And I have great news for you. Come to me. And I will give you rest. I'm going to connect you with God in a way that has nothing to do with religion. Now back to our mental status exam. Seriously. I ask you to think about what is it that makes a good Christian. And I don't want you to answer out loud because you're more than likely going to embarrass yourself unless you've really been paying attention the last few years. What does it take to be a good Christian? If you said something like, well, to be a good Christian, you have to have a prayer life. To be a good Christian, you have to read your Bible. To be a good Christian, you have to go to church. To be a good Christian, you have to probably memorize some scripture. To be a good Christian, you should be involved in church work. If you said anything like that, you're wrong. None of those things have anything to do with being a good Christian. In fact, the answer to the question is, what do you have to be to be a good Christian? Is very simply this. Follow Jesus and obey Him. That's it. That's it. Follow Jesus and obey Him. You say, oh, I knew that, but what I meant was, yeah, when you do that, you read your Bible and you pray and you go to church and you get baptized and you... <clears throat> and I want you to understand that if... Stay with me a minute. If your first thought was to think of behaviors that look like Christian activity, it betrays your assumptions about what it is to follow God. You really think, if those were your first thoughts, then you really think down deep that walking with God consists of doing the right things. 
in the right way on a regular basis. You have defined Christianity in your heart in one way or another as a, as a series of activities that you think you should do in order to be spiritual. And I want you to know this morning that it's the wrong answer. And I, and I really, I want to blast you out of that thought pattern. I want you, it's the wrong answer. The right answer is, to be a good Christian is to follow Jesus. I tacked on obey Him, but that really defines following Him. If you're following Jesus, you're kind of doing what He's doing. So, so you follow Jesus, and that's it. No rules. No rules. No laws. No regulations. No requirements. Did you hear me? <laughs> Are you really listening? No rules. Doesn't somebody want to stand up and call me before the elder board? No rules. Throw out, throw out the Old Testament. Forget, just throw it out. Throw out all the rules. Throw out all the requirements. Throw out all the fences. Throw out all the regulations. Throw out all the expectations. Just get rid of them. Take them out of your thinking. I didn't say throw away the Bible, because you, you, you are going to need it. But how often should you read the Bible? How often should you read the Bible if you're a good Christian? Answer, every time Jesus tells you to. That's it. Every time Jesus tells you to. Well, shouldn't I do that at 6 o'clock in the morning? Only if Jesus tells you to. Well, shouldn't I go to church? How often should I go to church? Every time Jesus tells you to. Well, shouldn't that be every Sunday at, you know, 10 o'clock? Some of you came at 10 o'clock at 9 o'clock today. And now you're here again. <clears throat> shouldn't I go to church? Every time Jesus tells you to. The whole point that Jesus is making in this passage is, I am not about religion. Religion is always about rules and regulations and requirements. I am not about that. I am about a relationship. I want you to have a relationship with me. And, and listen, <clears throat> I can tell you this morning safely. I'll, I'm going to deal with this a little later. But I can tell you this morning safely, I can tell you, throw away the rules, break down the fences, throw away the expectations... Follow Jesus, and if I tell you to follow Jesus and you do that, I'm not taking a risk here. Jesus is not going to take you somewhere that will destroy your life. He's not going to make you into an alcoholic by telling you to drink 15 times a day. He's never going to do that. I don't even have to worry about that. I don't have to tell you you know, <clears throat> don't consume a fifth of liquor and a 12-pack every day. I don't have to tell you that. I never even have to bring it up. If you will connect with Jesus Christ and follow Him with all your heart, He'll never take you there. I don't have to tell you, don't lie. Because if you follow Jesus Christ, He will always lead you in truth. I don't even need to say don't lie. He will lead you in truth. He won't take you somewhere else. And the whole point of all the law when God gave it, I've said this a thousand times, but the whole point of all the law when God gave it was to say, this is what I'm like, I'm giving it to you, and by the way, let me tack on this whole ceremonial system about sacrifice and animals and, and whatever, because you're never going to be able to keep this, and you're going you're to need to get cleansed and feel atoned, and even that's not going to work, because the blood of bulls and goats can never really cleanse your heart, and you will know that after a while. And eventually, I am going to send my Son, Jesus Christ, and He is the perfect Lamb of God that takes away, takes away the sin of the world, 
and in Him you will have cleansing and forgiveness. But as soon as God gave the law, He gave it right in conjunction with the sacrificial system because He knew they couldn't keep it. And I want to remind you this morning, friends, that religion, religion always goes in one of three areas. It always goes in one of three places. You either become a Pharisee, you get depressed, or you live like the devil. Religion takes you one of those three places every time. What do I mean by that? Well, if you happen to be wired in such a way that you love rules and, and you love bureaucracy and, and you do well in a highly ordered institutional environment, you know, you aspire to be the top bean counter of all the bean counters. I'm not making fun of anybody here, I don't think. Maybe I am, but I'm not meaning to, you know, demean your, your profession. But if you're wired in such a way that you love that kind of thing, then chances are you will love religion for the same reasons. And you will eventually work the rules around to the ones that you can keep, or you will redefine them in ways that you're good at. That's exactly what the lawyers of Jesus' day did. They made rules that they could keep, and that they were good at. And then, without meaning to do so necessarily, you will begin to set up a criteria by which you judge yourself and you judge other people. And you will, in your mind, think, if they're not doing what I'm doing, they're wrong. And pretty soon, they will be the dirty sinners, and you're righteous. And you have just successfully thought your way into Phariseeism. You are now a Pharisee. You may not... Call yourself one, you might not even have known they existed before this morning. But they were the Jewish rule givers, rule keepers. They they were really good at it. And you will become one. You will be that legalistic Pharisee that kind of stands there and and, and you're, you're the judge of how everybody should live. When the gospel went to the Gentiles... And it's kind of interesting because the same word of yoke is used, is used in this passage. When the gospel went to the Gentiles, here's what happened. All these good Jewish people that had all the synagogue, they had all the, they had, they had 1500 years of history from, since Moses. They had the laws, they had all the rules and regulations, and they had this nice Jewish lifestyle that consisted of do's and don'ts. How many of you have seen Fiddler on the Roof at some point in your lifetime? Yeah, okay, most everybody in the room, so I'm safe here. Tradition, you know, tradition, that's, that governs everything. Tradition is how you do it, you know. And so, and they were like that. That was t- the tradition, you know. And the gospel breaks out of the synagogue and begins to go out to the Gentiles. And these Gentiles, like, have no idea what being a Jew is like. But the gospel of Jesus Christ started in the context of Judaism, and so... The gospel message was first carried to the Roman world by Jewish people. And so now it's going out and these Gentiles are getting saved. And they're, it's like they're, they're coming to life and faith in Christ and their whole lives are changed and they're excited. And they, man, it's just so good. And then they come to the synagogue and it's kind of like what happened with the revival movement in the 1970s when all the hippies got saved. You know, I mean, they'd been to Woodstock, they'd done acid, they'd... They, they, they were doing, uh, you know, all kind of drugs and, and they were trying to look for some kind of meaning in life and it was getting worse and worse and worse. And then they came to Jesus. And I was there. I mean, I saw these people. And they were changed. I saw people who were heroin addicts delivered in one night, completely freed from heroin in one night. I saw it with my own eyes. I saw people transformed. I saw their lives catching passion and fire for Jesus Christ. And then they showed up at the church in blue jeans and tie-dyed shirts. And the guys had long hair. And, and, and they played instruments like guitars and drums. And, 
And the church went, oh my gosh, we've got to help these people. We've got to disciple them. Well, what does that mean? Put on the turtleneck, get on the blazer, get your hair cut, play the organ. I mean, you've got to change your life, man. You're following Jesus. We've got to get you fixed. That's exactly what was happening in Acts chapter 15 with the Gentiles. These people had no tradition of church. They had no history. They didn't know what church was all about. They'd never been to the synagogue. They didn't know you weren't supposed to eat pork. They had bacon and eggs for breakfast. They had no idea that you weren't supposed to do that. And oh my goodness, the, the, the Jewish people wanted to fix them. You know, it's like you, gotta, you can't eat any more pork. You've got to leave that out. And you've got to do this. You've got to do that. And oh, guys, we've really got some bad news for you. You've all got to be circumcised. You know, I mean, that, that follow Jesus, man. You've got to be circumcised. And that's the deal. And they're trying to push this on these people. And it's fine for the Jews. I mean, they grew up doing this stuff. Well, sort of fine. It wasn't really fine. But, but at least they were kind of used to it. It wasn't weird to them. But it was weird to the Gentiles. They dress different. They act different. They like different music. They, you know. And Peter stands up in this argument because they're having an argument. And they're saying, what, how are we going to get these Gentiles fixed? How are we going to get them to look like we look? And Peter stands up in the middle of that, verse 10 of Acts chapter 15, and this is what he says. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test? Notice how he puts this. Why do you put God to the test? I mean, what's going to happen when you put God to the test? <clears throat> I mean, the Jews are, these Jews are the ones that are in trouble. You put God to the test, you're the one in trouble. Why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples... Who's, who are the disciples... It's not the twelve. These are Gentile believers in Jesus Christ. Disciple is a learner. Why do you want to put upon the neck of these new learners, these new followers of Jesus, why do you put, want to put on their neck a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? It's like, good grief, we don't even like all this stuff. Why do you want them to look like us? We can't even do this. And then he goes on to say, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way that they are. Let's let God be God and you stop trying to make them look like us. Because we don't even do this thing very well. And, and all the people said, oh, well, okay. Maybe he's got a point. They didn't exactly buy into it 100%. You, it was kind of took a while for the church to... Stop trying to make everybody Jews. You know, and, that's, and unfortunately, a lot of our evangelism, friends, is like that. We think that to evangelize people, we've got to successfully negotiate them into these doors, sitting here looking prim and proper on Sunday morning and doing all... And let's get them on the missions committee. Let's, get them on, let's let them teach Awana. And let's, you know, let's get them plugged into church. And I want you to know this morning... That's not what it's about. Jesus may tell them to do some of those things, but that's not the point. The point is bringing them into an introduction to God by faith, where they just follow Him. They just follow, not you, Him. Not do what you do, do what He tells them to do. Oh, that's pretty risky. Not if you communicated the gospel appropriately. Because Jesus will not take you down the wrong road. In fact, it's kind of interesting, this whole yoke business. found a verse in Jeremiah 6.16. Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. That's the road Jesus is on. That's where he's headed. It's a good path. He's not going to take you in the wrong direction. But the answer to being a good Christian is not defined in terms of what you do or don't do in terms of practice. It is defined in terms of who you are as a follower of Jesus Christ. And he says, those of you that are tired 
and, and, and burnt out and frustrated with being religious and doing all the Christian things, come to me and take my yoke upon you and learn of me and I will give you rest for I am gentle and humble in heart. Now, Jesus is inviting us. If you're not going to be religious, here's the alternative. Come to Jesus. And he says, "Put, take my yoke. Remember what the yoke is? It's, it's a two-humped thing. It takes two oxen or two mules or whatever. It's designed to put two animals together, usually two. And they come side by side. And in, in the analogy that Jesus is giving, which his agrarian listeners fully comprehended, was you always train the young one by putting them in the yoke with the experienced, trained oxen, mule, donkey, whatever. You always put them together, usually oxen in their day. You put the, new, the newbie with the one that knows the ropes. And it's a relationship. You put them in the yoke, and as the newbie walks beside the experienced one, he learns how to do it. And Jesus is giving us an invitation. He says, come to me, get in the yoke with me, and I will show you how it's done. Now, the writer of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus is a very capable teacher in this regard. Because some people say, well, what can Jesus tell me about sin and temptation? Man, I live out there in the real world, and he was, after all, God. But the writer of Hebrews said, no. He took on human form just like us. He became a man just like we are. And he was tempted in everything the same way we're tempted. But he successfully negotiated all the temptations so that he never sinned. I mean, he knows. He won every time. I mean, you want to learn how to do some video game. You want to learn how to play a sport. You want, go, go, go learn from someone that wins every game. You know, they know something. And, and what the writer of Hebrews is saying is Jesus, every time he was tempted, he won. He never failed. He never, you know, succumbed. He always won. Come learn from him. But it's interesting that when Jesus says, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and there you will find rest for your souls, he's talking about what kind of a teacher he is. I was getting into that this week, and I was, really, I don't have an outline for you this morning. I have a word study. You probably figured that out. But um, I had this neat Bible program, and my computer does cut and paste very well. So I gave you just a lot of cut and paste stuff in there. But, but I want you to read those definitions because they're so helpful. And I started getting into this, I am humble and lowly in heart and spirit, and there you'll find rest for your souls. I started getting into that a little bit, and I realized that Jesus was talking to us about what kind of teacher he is. One of the thought questions I put in your uh, study guide for this week is, think about all the teachers you've had in life. And think about the ones that were really good. Can you think of a really, really good teacher? Or perhaps in, in opposition, maybe you can think of a really, really bad one. You know, I remember a teacher I had in high school, Algebra 2. And um, I had a problem with Algebra 2. I'm one of those... People, I either get it or I don't. You know, I don't gradually land there. I just, I don't understand, I don't understand, I don't understand. And then one day, ah, I understand. And when I've got it, I've really got it for the rest of my life. It's a done deal. I got it. I didn't memorize something. But, but until I get there, I don't understand. I have another theory about teachers. And I realize I said this in the 8 o'clock service. So I was kind of condemning myself because I started out my sermon by complaining I've been teaching things for 30 years that nobody's gotten and so what I'm about to say makes me look bad, but oh well. This is my personal belief. If you can't teach something, it's ultimately because you really don't understand it yourself. Because I think if you really understand something, you can put it at a level that other people will get. I think you can find analogies, you can find ways. If you really, really, really got it, I think you can communicate it. Well, maybe not. Maybe I have the gift of teaching, and that's just my assumption. So I won't press that too far. But anyway, so I had this algebra teacher, and my, my retrospective analysis was he didn't understand algebra. I don't think he had a clue what he was doing. He was just writing equations on the board, and he had the answers in the book. 
and, and he was getting paid to do that. So anyway, and I would ask questions in class, and you know, and he would. I could tell by the look on his face. The minute my hand would go up, he gets a stern look on his face, and I'd say, I don't understand. Can you explain this again? And 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 he couldn't. And and he, and finally. He went to the guidance office and he checked out all my standardized tests and achievement scores and stuff like that. And he decided that I was a fairly intelligent person. And if I didn't, if I was raising my hand in his class saying I didn't understand, it was because I was running a game with him. And I was just trying to delay the class and mess up his whole teaching purposes. And so, so uh, finally he, um, you know, he would get to where I would raise my hand and say, what is it? And then one day he said, you know what, I'm tired of you interrupting my class. I, I'm tired of you just raising your hand. You know perfectly well what's going on in this class. I'm tired of you doing this. I don't know why you didn't think I'd be making A's on the test if that were the case. I mean, why would I flunk a class just to make a point? But he said, I'm tired of you interrupting my class. I want you to get out of here, go to the guidance office right now, get out of this class, don't ever come back, go find yourself another math class. Okay. So I did. I mean, he was serious. He did not want me back. He made the trip to the office himself after school, and that I was done with Algebra 2. They put me in trig. Go figure. <laughs> I managed to get through it, but <laughs> I never got Algebra 2. Till years later, I was reading a book I think we bought for homeschooling or something, and I'm reading through it, and it's like, oh, that's how that works. You know, I've been kind of solving for unknowns all my life, but I just didn't know that there was a specific way to go about doing it. I remember that teacher because I did not like his class. I didn't get it, and he was not helpful. And every time I would ask a question, I got the smackdown until finally I got thrown out. Jesus is saying exactly the opposite here. He's saying, I understand it. And furthermore, you will never find anybody that will be more gentle with you, more humble with you. You can ask me anything. You've committed the same sin for the 573rd time. And you know what? You can still talk to me about it. I, I'm not going to throw you out of class. I'm not going to just fail you. I'm not going to just throw up my hands and say, look, you just don't get it. You're just not listening. I'm going to explain it again. We'll go over this again. And the penalty part, the wrath part, the judgment, that's already covered in His blood. We don't even have to deal with that. Now we can get down to the business of learning to walk like Him. And He says, just come talk to me. I am gentle. I mean, he's the best teacher you could ever want to know. He knows his subject. He's passed every test. He thoroughly understands it. Even more importantly, he thoroughly understands you. I mean, he knows how you're wired. He knows how to explain it. And he's perfectly willing to take all the time in the world to help you get it. And part of that reason is he's already prophesied the outcome. He says, I will safely bring everyone that comes to me. I will take them safely to my heavenly kingdom. And along the way, I will remake them in my image. I have no, I, I'm not afraid. I can do this. And so you're, you're beside one who inspires confidence. And he says, I'm going to teach you. I'm gentle, I'm humble, I'm approachable, I'm easy. Talk to me. We're always afraid when we go to God and the church gives us this impression that, that we mess up and God's going to get us. And, and Jesus is saying, I'm not here to get you. I already went to the cross for that. I'm here to teach you. I'm here to show you. I'm here to model. Walk beside me in the yoke. And then, and then he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, yokes were designed to hook up animals to do work. But Jesus is saying, I will take the load. 
You take my yoke, I will take the load. You come alongside me and we'll do this together, but I will take the burden. And you can enjoy my company. And we'll do it together. We'll be here together, but I will do this for you. You see, what's not said in this passage, because you have to get the rest of the Gospels to get it, but what's not said here is some things that we celebrated the Lord's table this morning, which reminded us of this. First of all, I'm going to do away with your sin. I'm going to cleanse it so that you can have intimacy with God. Can you imagine getting in a yoke right beside Almighty God? How can you do that with sin in your life? Well, you can't. He says, I'm going to cleanse the sin so that you can come next to me. And he says, then, you don't have any power. But he says, I'm going to cause you to be spiritually reborn. I will put my spirit inside you. I will bring you to life. And I will fill you with my spirit, who will enable you to do what you see me doing. So I'm going to show you how to do it. I'm going to explain it to you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to carry the responsibility. I'm going to fill you with my spirit. And, and if you just hang out in the yoke with me, I will empower you to do what I'm doing. And, and it'll be fine. You see how easy that is? And, and you don't have to start with a bunch of rules. You start with a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you walk with Him. And he says, you don't ever have to be afraid. You walk with me, it's a good path. I'm going to take you down a good path. Now, how can I stand up here this morning in front of you and tell you to throw out all the law and just follow Jesus? Well, there is, there is a catch And I've thought about why many people are disappointed with God. Why many people say it doesn't work. And and I want to just take a couple minutes and explain that to you because you, you have a decision to make this morning. Jesus says, those of you that are burnt out, worn out, exhausted, your life's gotten overwhelming, you're just not doing very well, and you're failing at being a Christian, come to me. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me. I'll give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you. You cannot be in the yoke with Jesus and want to go a different way than he's going. You see, that's the rub. If you're going to be in the yoke with Jesus where there's success, where there's rest, where there's peace, you're going to be in the yoke with Jesus under His total authority, under His Lordship. You go where He goes. You do what He does. You follow Him completely. And you get to a fork in the road and you say, Dad looks like fun over there. And Jesus says, yeah, but it's really not. And b- besides that, I'm going this way. And you say, uh, you go on a little ways. I'll catch up in a few minutes. And you're in trouble over here. You have to go with him if you want the success, if you want the peace, if you want the rest, if you, if you want the successful Christian life, you've got to stay on the path He's on. And really what it boils down to is, Jesus is saying, you don't have to worry about all the trappings of religion. I'll take that off of you. You don't have to get up in the morning and think about 600 rules to keep for the Sabbath. You, don't, you just don't even have to think about that. But you do have to follow me. If you'll follow me, I'll give you rest. But you do have to follow me. And that following means that he is the Lord of your life. And you submit completely to him. 
And I honestly believe that where, where many Christians become disappointed is because they have not settled the issue of being in the yoke with Jesus and going where he goes. They want the, the, the blessings of the spiritual life. Jesus said, I've come to give you abundant life. You say, I want that. I like that. I want abundant life. Okay, it's in me. Well, can I just have abundant life and not be quite so close? No. No, because it's in him. It's not over here beside him. It's in him. Can I, can I successfully navigate the, the, the trail Kind of and go where I want to every once in a while? No. Because you'll fail over there. You come with me. I will give you rest and peace, but you've got to stay with me. You have to stay with me. You don't have to worry about all the rules and regulations and requirements, but you have to stay in the yoke with me because I am where it's at. I'm the peace. I'm the rest. I'm the abundance. I'm the joy. I'm the success. I know how to do it. You have to stay with me. And friends, that's where we get into trouble. We want the blessings of the faith. And we still want to be in control of our own lives. And God is just standing there. You know, those of you that are parents and think back, you know, when your kids were about four and they saw something across the street that they really wanted. And you got their hand, and they're tugging. They want to go. And they have no concept of traffic. You know, and you're hanging on. And you know that the greatest blessing for them is right here for this moment. When they get their eyes on that thing they want, oblivious to the disaster, you know, and, and many, many Christians are frustrated because they want to go play in the traffic and not get hurt. And Jesus, is, Jesus never says, don't play in the traffic. I've said that about 50 times in the sermon. Have you gotten it? Jesus doesn't say, don't go play in the traffic. He just says, stay with me. That's all he says. Stay with me. You won't play in the traffic if you stay with me. I'm where you're safe. And we have a hard time right there. Is Jesus the master of your yoke this morning? Are you in the yoke with him? Are you following him? He will give you an abundant, successful life in all the most important ways, if you will. And if that's what you want, and you want to be free from all the trappings, follow Jesus. Get in the yoke with him. Father, I want to pray this morning that you'll open our eyes to see, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts and minds to understand. But then, Lord, it, it ultimately comes down to the bottom line, which is surrendering to you, because you love us so incredibly much, and, and it's not a big deal. It's not a hard thing, except it is tough when we want to hang on to our own way. And I pray this morning that you'll bring us to the place of freedom, walking with Jesus. Lead us, Lord, in paths of righteousness for your own namesake. In Jesus' name, amen.